Anything combat with Johnny K. But it's anything combat though. Welcome back, combatants, to the Anything Combat Show, where we discuss everything mixed martial arts. I'm your host, Johnny K, and today we're joined by a special guest. He owns a UFC gym in Naperville. He's a WEC and UFC MMA veteran in the featherweight division. Please welcome Ricardo Lamas. How are you today, Ricardo? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good, my friend. Let's discuss, the first thing I have for you is, what's your favorite submission? And why? Um, that's a good one. Favorite submission is probably a, a guillotine. Um, and why? I guess I'm I'm pretty good at it. So uh, something I learned from my BJJ coach Daniel Valverde down in Miami out of MMA Masters. Uh, just worked on it with him for a long time, and uh, I've used it in a few of my fights. I submitted Charles Oliveira with one, uh, Dennis Bermudez. So it's it's definitely my go-to submission. I saw that some people are doing some alteration to a guillotine choke, so it's sort of a different type of choke. You saw Said Namagamedov do it in the most recent UFC card. It's the ninja choke. What are your opinions on this, and have you been – do you use this at all? I don't, th- I don't know if I've uh, seen it yet. I'll have to go back and take a look at his fight. I missed that last card that he was on, so um, I'd have to go back and take a look and uh, see what I think about it. But I'm always open to different – you know, I learn a lot from watching fights and, you know, everybody has a different style and everybody has little tweaks on certain submissions that um, I love learning and stuff like that. So I'll definitely give it a look. When did you first get involved with BJJ? Um, for like, so I started wrestling. I was a wrestler in high school. I wrestled through college. And then when I graduated is when I kind of started my, my MMA path. Um, and for my first few fights, actually really leading up until like kind of I turned pro, I didn't really do much BJJ. Um, but from when I was a kid, I was a huge UFC fan. So I was a very visual learner uh, growing up and, and still am. So like if I watch somebody do something on a video or like in a fight or whatever, I can kind of study it, break it down myself and kind of teach it to myself. Um so from being a big UFC fan, and I guess this goes back to why the guillotine is one of my favorite submissions. Like I remember teaching myself how to do a guillotine and uh, just, I guess it's a submission I've been doing for the longest because I've been doing it since like high school, you know, messing around with my friends wrestling on the wrestling team and stuff. Sometimes we do like submissions. And uh, so I, uh, I teach myself some of that stuff in the beginning, but I didn't really start like going to an actual BJJ coach until probably um my my last amateur fighter my first pro fight so then i started going to an actual gym learning bjj from an actual coach and that was around uh, 2007 2008 oh ricardo basically yesterday john jones for some reason tore his peck how do you feel about this when did you hear this and what do you think do you think that they should have stripped him because they haven't um yeah you know I can relate to this one because I actually, I tore my pectoral muscle too one time uh, in a training camp. I was supposed to, I was scheduled to fight Dustin Poirier. I think it was like my, my second or third fight in the UFC. Um, and then training, I tore my pec. So it's definitely a serious injury. Um, it's the only time I've ever had to pull out of the fight because it really left me like unable to do much of anything at all. Um, and I heard his was that mine wasn't a comp- like a full tear. It was a partial tear, but it was still bad enough to where I had to pull out of the fight. From what I've heard is that John's was a complete tear, like off the bone. So he's got That's to go what I heard surgery. from Dana. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely serious. And, uh, 
I think with him being out for eight months, I mean, they are doing an interim title shot. So, um, you know, at least there's that. They're going to have kind of an interim champion waiting for him upon his return. So it'll be a good way to kind of set up a, a, another title shot with John Jones. As you know, most champions, when they get injured, you had um, you had Jamal Hill, who just vacated his belt the second that he had an Achilles injury. And then you had Yuri, who also did the same when he had a shoulder injury. So do you think from that perspective that it would have been fair to just let Aspinall and Sergey fight for the vacant undisputed? Or do you think that an interim is probably the best way to go to the fact that Jones has held the belt for so long? Um, yeah, you know, I think a lot of it depends on maybe how long somebody's going to be out. You know, I know those Achilles, uh, injuries are, are really serious and take a really long time to heal and come back from because there's a lot of therapy that has to come after the surgery gets done. Uh, so maybe, maybe the UFC, if, if a champ is going to be out for like more than a year, maybe they strip them of the title. I'm not sure how they really decide that. Uh, but then again, you know, John Jones is a huge name in the sport. He's one of the best of all time. So maybe that's kind of why they're letting him hang on to that belt while he's going to be recovering from this injury. What did it feel like when you tore your pec? Oh, man, it was, uh, it was you know, it was very stupid on my part because what happened was I was, I was lifting. I was kind of doing like a conditioning circuit, and I, I felt a muscle pull in my chest. Um, but... I was set up for a fight, so I didn't want to kind of take a break from training. I just kind of pushed through. And then a few days later, I was in the gym, and I was sparring. And um, I was chasing someone down. I threw a real hard, like, body hook. And then I just felt the whole thing, like a wave, go through my chest. And, like, as soon as I felt that, like, I knew something was wrong. I never felt that before. And immediately, it just started, like, swelling up here. And... Um, I like I couldn't do like any movements getting out of bed hurt you know like any type of of rotation really hurt that that chest area so it was bad um that was that was probably one of my worst injuries that I've had in my career uh so it's uh it's a big one to get and and hopefully he can come back 100% from it most definitely what do you think about Aspinall versus Sergey? Who do you have in that matchup? Personally, I think Tom Aspinall is a little bit too fast and a little bit too complete with his wrestling and grappling systems for Sergey's boxing. Yeah, I think uh, I agree with you on that one. Aspinall is kind of one of this one of these new generation fighters that came up training everything. So he's like super well rounded. He's very dangerous. He's very fast, especially you know for a heavyweight, he's very athletic and very fast. I like his style of fighting. Um, so I would kind of push the chips towards Arsenal on, on that one as well. What's it like working and owning a UFC gym? Uh, I love it. You know, um, so going in, going into fighting career, you know, we obviously can't fight into our 50s and 60s. Even in, into our 40s, people usually start hanging it up. So you really have to set yourself up for something after fighting. Um, me being involved in sports uh, competitively since I was 14 years old, like coaching was something that I knew I always wanted to do. Um, and in college I met actually my business partner. We wrestled on, on, uh, the same team together. And back then we had always talked about maybe opening up like a wrestling facility, uh, to help coach kids. And then when I got involved in my MMA career, it kind of, um, you know, transformed into an MMA gym. 
So when I was getting kind of to the latter end of my career and, and I really wanted to, I wanted to have the gym set while I was still fighting so that I could kind of promote it while I was fighting and then have something to transition into when I was done. And we were kind of deciding on whether we should go our own signature route, like open our own gym with our own brand or at that same time, UFC gym had just started popping up all over the place. And I was approached by, uh, the UFC gym president, I, I met him at a few events and he kind of talked to me about it. And so me and my partner went to go visit one of the UFC gyms that was open in our area. And we just really liked kind of the ambiance of the whole place. It's, it's very family friendly. And me and my partner were just kind of at that time starting our own families. So we wanted a place that like our kids could grow up in that, you know, people wouldn't be afraid to bring their kids to. It's not, you know, people see the, the UFC sign and they think that they're going to walk in and just see a bunch of professional fighters like beating the shit out of each other but really you know it's the exact opposite it's a very family friendly environment 98 percent of our members are never going to set foot in a cage um and our gym is special too because like some ufc gyms i know they have a stigma of like you know not being a legit place to train but i'm here every day i teach classes i have my own kind of small fight team that that uh most of my coaches are um, involved in. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're even a step above. So I'm here. My name isn't only on, on the building, but I'm here every single day. Why did some of those UFC gyms get that stigma? They're just like not, uh, good enough quality coaches and some of the other ones. I think that, you know, when you're dealing with a franchise, it's hard to stay consistent across the board, right? Um, you have different owners at different gyms. And I think that some of those owners in the past haven't staffed their gym well. So I know I've come across videos of like, you know, fake BJJ black belts teaching at, at UFC gyms, maybe because the owner didn't vet them correctly, or maybe because the owner isn't that involved in the sport themselves and they don't know the difference between a BJJ black belt and somebody just, you know, building themselves up. Um, so I think that, you know, and, and you, you get that with any franchise, right? I mean, we can go to different gas stations that are franchises. Some will be run horribly. Some will be run good. So I think just uh, corporate has done a lot better of a job lately on getting all the gyms kind of on par and on level together and making sure that they're all staffed correctly. Sure. I saw that Makachev had an amazing performance against Volkanovski. People are saying that he's up there with the most complete fighters to ever step foot in the sport. Um, I want to ask you, what do you think he's missing in his game? Personally, I looked back, I rewatched heaps of fights. I saw, I was trying to find if he had an elbow game, if he didn't have it or not. And when I saw heaps of elbow, uh, like ground and pound sequences, I realized that he has that too. So I'm really trying my best to find out what he doesn't have. So what do you think it is? You know, before this fight, I would have said, like, a, a kicking game. And I still don't think, like, his kicking game is up to par with, like, a Taekwondo-style kicker. But then he goes and scores, you know, a head kick KO on Alexander Volkanovsky. So, you know, he is one of these guys that, that really can do everything. He can wrestle. He can strike. We've seen him put down a lot of good strikers, you know, including Charles Oliveira, Alexander Volkanovsky. So I think as, as more fights come across and as he fights uh, – kind of different style of fighters will be able to see whether there are more holes in his game. If I had to pick one thing, I would probably say, you know, he, he doesn't throw a lot of flashy kicks and stuff like that. So maybe his kicking game could, uh, could be improved a little bit, 
but then again, it's not the flashy stuff that makes you world champion. You know, it's 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 doing the basics correctly and doing the basics perfect, and and he does that well. What's that story behind uh, you first meeting Louis Polamina? I've seen that you've been uh, with him for a very long time. You guys have been yeah. friends. So when did you guys first meet? So it, uh, it it's a funny story, and it kind of all came by chance. Um, it was my second fight in the WEC. I was getting ready to fight James Krause. Um, the fight was scheduled to be in November. Uh, so this was during training camp in October. And if you know anything about the Midwest, kind of like around mid-October, the weather starts to break and get colder around here. You know, summer's over, fall starts kicking in, weather starts to get colder. Um, and uh, at that time, my family had a uh, place in, in Miami, Florida, North Miami. I'm half Cuban, so my, my whole Cuban side of my family lived in Florida. So Miami was kind of like a second home for me growing up. Like we'd spend summer vacations out there. We spent Christmases out there. Pretty much any time we had break, we'd go down to Miami to visit my dad's side of the family. Um, my coach at the time also kind of had like a timeshare down there. So we were like, hey, you know, weather's getting bad up here. Let's kind of break it up a little bit. Let's go down to Miami and train for a week and just kind of get out of the cold weather. Uh, so we, we go down there and my coach had a friend who, who was living in Miami at the time and said, hey, if you guys need an MMA gym to train at, I go to this place, MMA Masters. I'm sure they'd love for you guys to stop by and get some sessions in. Uh, so we're like, yeah, we'll do that for sure. Um, and my first night going to MMA Masters, it was uh, during the pro practice. It was probably in the, in the afternoon because I usually had it around 11 o'clock. We stroll in late. I don't know if it was because we just you know, got the wrong time or whatever, but they usually end pro practice with sparring. So when we walk in, the guys are getting geared up to spar. And uh, they're like, yeah, you know, hurry up, throw your stuff on, and you'll be in the cage with Baboon. I'm like, Baboon? So that's like everybody calls him Baboon. I never call him Lewis. So I step in the cage, and uh, no warm-up, right? I'm like, I got there late. I'm cold. I throw my stuff on. I'm right. let's go. It'll be nice and easy. So, like, I'm talking to my coach who's standing outside of the cage, and then I turn around to face Baboon, and he's, like, pacing back and forth in the cage, like, staring me down, you know? I'm like, holy shit, like. This guy looks like I just said something bad about his mom. Like, he wants to come kill me, right? So, I always joke about him with that, too. So, opening bell comes out, and he, like, rushes at me. Pop, 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 pop. Like, five-punch combo ends with a kick, and I'm like, shit. You know, at this point, uh, I came from a smaller MMA gym. I was kind of, like, the best guy out of the gym I was at. So, it was strange for me to step in the gym and, like, start getting my ass kicked, like, right off the bat. Uh, so, after that, I was like, no more, no more stand-up with him. And, you know, I start going takedowns and and taking him down to the ground and me and him are just battling back and forth. And I don't know how, but like he, he decided he wanted to try to take me down. He ended up shooting in at the same time as I was throwing a kick and I caught him with a knee right here on, on, uh, on the eye and ended up splitting him open. Um, and I always joke about that with him too. It's something that I got the better of him, but he was, he was kind of kicking my ass during that sparring session. So I'm glad that he stopped after that. Uh, but then after that, you know, we get done sparring. The next day I come back in, and then I get a taste of my jiu-jitsu coach, Daniel Valverde. So, like, we go there for, for jiu-jitsu class, and then we start rolling live. I go right with him, and he starts, like, choking the hell out of me left and right, just kicking my ass like a bunch of these guys. So when, as, a, as a fighter, when you get to a place like that, it, like, it motivates you, right? I was like, geez, like, I need to get to these guys' level. 
So in my very next fight in the WEC, I planned out for half my camp to do in Miami. So I started uh, in Illinois and then I finished in Miami. And I just kept doing that every, every camp after and just kind of made it my home. Um, and it worked because like that first camp, um, after that first camp, I scored my very first like real KO against Bendy Casimir in the WEC where I landed a flying knee. It's the and, flying uh, knee clip. That's a very popular knee. knockout of yours. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I could kind of pay tribute to Baboon for that one too, because during that camp, our main MMA coach, Cesar Carnero, was in uh, Brazil. So he wasn't there for that camp, but Baboon was running all the pro practices. And he would make us do that flying knee and warm-ups every single day. And it just it just came out in the fight. So, uh, you, you know, you got to pay respect where respect is due. You know, he, he kind of taught me that flying knee in our practices, and, I, and it carried over. So me and Baboon became, like, best friends, though, because where I was strong, he was, I wouldn't say weak, but he's that's where he needed improvement. Like, I was strong in wrestling, and he didn't grow up wrestling. He was strong in striking. And the striking is where I needed improvement. So whenever me and him would train together, we both just elevate each other. Uh, and, you know, for, for years we were doing that for the better part of the decade. So, he, you know, he's like a brother to me. I don't consider him like a, a friend or a training partner. You know, uh, I'm always there for him. He's always there for me. And it was, uh, you know, you form great friendships through training. And he's one of them. Have you gone to Peru with him? Not yet, but that's on the bucket list. We always talk about it. Um, I know he's been going out there a lot more lately. So I'm hoping that, you know, when I can come up for air, you know, I'm really busy here at the gym. But uh, it's definitely on my bucket list to go to Peru. People like him and Mike Perry, I just feel like that BKFC skill set and that fighting style is tailor-made for someone that's a brawler that wants that single collar with no gloves. It is such a chaotic sport, and I feel like these two, it's like literally built for them. How did you feel seeing your friend get so many championships and basically be the GOAT of BKFC right now? Um. I knew he was going to do that at some point in his career. You know, me and him, you know, I had, I kind of had the luck of the draw getting my foot in the door with the WEC and, and making it into the UFC. But uh, Baboon was one of those fighters that should have been there alongside me the entire time. I mean, this guy was, I know he was destined to be a world champ sooner or later. Um, you know, and if you followed his career, you saw how good he was. I mean, he had, two fight of the years with Justin Gage and WSOF where he almost had Gage knocked out in like the first minute of each of those fights. So he was like, he, it doesn't matter who he was fighting. He was right there with him, no matter if they were the best in the world or what. Um, and it was just, you know, fighting is so unpredictable. It's a roll of the dice when you're in there, the fight can go either way. He would have some big fights that, you know, just didn't go his way. And then it would kind of, delay him from getting to one of those big shows. But he finally found his home in, in BKFC. And I think that sport was really tailor-made for him because, you know, boxing is his bread and butter. That's what he kind of started out doing. And he just outclasses everybody there. And speaking of Mike Perry, I don't know why the BKFC won't book that fight. I mean, a fight between Baboon and Mike Perry is one I think I would pay to see in anybody else in the world too. So BKFC, Dave Feldman, you better screw your head back on straight and get Baboon a big fight would you fight in the BKFC if they gave you like a good matchup? Like I'm talking, if you're a grappler, of course, you're not like 
fundamentally a boxer. They wouldn't chuck you up against a professional boxer that's undefeated. I'm saying if they gave you an ex-MMA veteran in the same position that you are now to have a very fair fight, would you take it if they gave you good cash? Of course, yeah. I think, um, you know, being a fan of, of the UFC, I was a fan of UFC since I was like 10, 11 years old. And this is back when they were doing bare knuckle, right? It was It was no gloves, no weight classes, none of that. So that was always kind of in the back of my head to, to try and do like an old school MMA fight or maybe even like Gamebred. Gamebred FC is doing that now, right? They're doing bare knuckle MMA fights. So listen, I'd get back in there for, for the right price for sure, 100%. So as we just spoke about your guy, Louie, you guys were hanging out with Dan Henderson together. Why were you guys outside some sort of, I think it was a plane that I saw? Yeah. Yeah, so um, that came about through MMA Junkie guys. So they do like uh, military tours where they go visit different bases with with uh, fighters from the UFC and stuff. And they called me up and they're like, hey, you know, would you like to come out and do one of these tours? And I was like, yeah. And I suggested that they bring uh, Baboon with, especially because, you know, he was just making it a big name for himself in BKFC. So they, they brought him out as well. And uh, it was just fun to do a trip like that. Dan Henderson was a riot. Um, I really liked him. You know, he just reminded me of like my old wrestling coaches from college and stuff. And um, I really enjoyed myself doing that. And hopefully they bring us out for some more. What do you think the UFC should be doing to people that miss weight? Um, I definitely think there should be harsher penalties. Um, I think for starters, you don't get your show money. Right, because you didn't show technically for the fight. You got to make weight to show up for that fight. So none of this 20, 30% goes to your opponent. Your whole win purse goes to your opponent, number one. Um, and then I think also, number two, they should make you move up a weight class at least for one fight on the next one and not allow you to, to fight back down at that weight class. Um, I just think it's, it's very unprofessional. I've been involved in in weigh-ins since I was 14 years old. I've never once in my life missed weight, not even for like an off-season tournament that didn't uh, count for anything. So I always took that very seriously, but I think they need to uh, make the punishments a little harsher for the guys who miss weight. So don't you think that if they are missing weight and then you're saying something like, let them fight in the division above, don't you think it's a better idea that... um, that instead we have ban weight cutting and then whenever there's a important matchup, you do a catch weight for it. Like if Nate and fucking Connor want to have their fight, instead of them moving around so much, why don't you just pick a weight class, let's say 165 or 162, whatever it is. I know Dana hates that, but pick, do it just like boxing, but ban the weight cutting so we can standardize the uh, divisions. And then at that point, if you were to do that, you would do the 10-pound increment and get rid of um, 70 and get rid of 205 or whatever whatever the makeup is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's a better solution? I think, I think banning weight cutting would be a better solution. Um, in the NCAA, you know, when I wrestled in college uh, – there was a period of time where there was like three college wrestlers in division one who ended up passing away from cutting weight. They died. So the NCAA implemented these rules to try and, uh, you know, stop such a drastic weight cut. So in the beginning of the season, we'd go in and the trainers at our school measure our body fat 
with uh, calipers. And then they would, so basically off the chart that they would use, they would determine the lowest weight class that we would be able to cut to. Um, and then we were only allowed to go there like so slowly, right? We could, uh, I think it worked out to where we could only lose like two pounds a week to get down to that final uh, weight class that we were supposed to be in. And then furthermore, to certify at that weight class, we had to make weight and be hydrated at the same time. So I think that the USC kind of adopted some rules like this to uh, limit the, the amount of weight that people can cut. I think it'd be a lot healthier for the fighters. I think we would see better fights. Guys wouldn't be as sucked down. Um, I think it would be better all around. But I think that guys are always going to find a way to kind of gamify as long as there are weight classes, a, a way to kind of gamify how, how to gain a little bit of an advantage. But, you know, it's part of the sport, but I think the more the more rules they implement, the better it'll be for everyone. Did you enjoy your time at the NCAA? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, without the sport of wrestling, I wouldn't be where I'm at. It's what taught me my work ethic. It's what uh, got me used to that one-on-one -on -one competition. Like, and it, uh, it, it really made me fall in love with, with training and, you know, in wrestling, it's like, it's what you put in is what you're going to get out. And it's the same with MMA. So I learned that in wrestling, it carried over into MMA for me. So what was that transition like for you being a wrestler and then starting the BJJ and kind of obsessing over that martial art, that grappling system, and then kind of fusing them together? When did that overlay occur? Um, I, I would say it kind of occurred when I started actually training BJJ, right? So I started dedicating time to, uh, to going to practice and learning the techniques and being a wrestler. Um, I feel like when, when you use your wrestling style and you combine it with the BJJ style, it makes for a very dangerous competitor because you're kind of taking that, uh, you know, wrestling and BJJ, they're, they're, they're similar, but they're different, right? Wrestling is hard nose. You're constantly like this, right? And you're, you're, you're in scrambles and you're using strength and, you, and you're doing this and that. BJJ is, is slower pace, right? You're supposed to use technique and not use strength. But when you combine the two, man, it's like, it's even better. I call it like wrestle jitsu. You know, it's not jujitsu, it's wrestle jitsu. So you're using fast scrambling techniques, you're using strength, and then you're using technique at the same time. Um, when I started combining the two, I started kind of, you know, blowing through a lot of people in practice and, uh, just kind of made it my own style and just apart from grappling when I went to MMA masters my my stand-up started going through the roof also so I love standing too and uh, you know there's nothing better than getting like a TKO or a knockout um, it, it beats I think it beats submissions every time just you know uh, dropping someone from from punching them there's something about it. it's like it's like cranking a home run in, in baseball just hitting it off the sweet spot of the bat have you ever, like, competed or, like, trained judo primarily? I know you've done BJJ and wrestling, but do you have any judo in your game? Yes, I do, because my BJJ coach was a judo black belt as well. So, similar to me, like, when I teach BJJ, I, uh, I devote a certain amount of time to – sorry about that. I devote a certain amount of time to, um, to takedowns. So, I teach my, my guys takedowns and stuff. My BJJ coach would do the same thing, and he would devote a certain amount of time to kind of like judo stand-up. So he would teach us a lot of throws and, and stuff like that. So it's definitely uh, carried over into my style of grappling also. Um, training with Daniel Valverde for so long, who, you know, holds it. He was a great judo black belt and, you know, world champion in jiu-jitsu also. 
are you still in contact with uh, Valverde? Do you, do you uh, talk to him or train with him every so often? I do. I text with uh, with Daniel and Cesar a lot. Um, and actually, they're, they want to bring me out to Miami to do kind of a seminar at their school. We're just trying to figure out when we're going to do that. But I talk to them all the time, you know, and I think I'll talk to them. You know, they'll be a part of my life forever. They're, they were such a huge part of my MMA career. And, um, you know, I always love representing them wherever I go. You just brought up a fighter that can study wrestling and implement the jiu-jitsu, either transitions whilst they're wrestling or getting the sub game whilst they're in a, you know, a uh, bad position while someone else, they've put someone in a bad position to get that quick sub makes a dangerous fighter. They're, the Russians have done this. You've got Chemaev who's implementing this type of strategy. And from the US side of things, I think I would consider Bo Nickel kind of that style, that dangerous style. Do you? Yeah. What do you see uh, between those two fighters uh, and and their styles when it comes to specifically that uh, part of the game? Yeah, I think um, you know wrestlers. Period are are very top dominant, right? They like to be on top, especially when attacking in jujitsu. I mean, especially those Dagestani guys. I don't think I've ever seen Khabib or or uh, Makachev um, or Hamzat on their back grappling, right? Where if you see someone like Charles Oliveira, who's a very good jiu-jitsu practitioner, he'll, he might pull guard sometime to fight off his back and he'll get submissions off his back. Um, wrestlers are very top dominated. Um, I do see a lot of similar, uh, similar techniques between a guy like Bo Nickel and a guy like Hamzat. You know, they both like to be on top. They both like to pressure their opponents and kind of break them from the top position. Um, I just think it's it's very dangerous and beneficial to have that wrestling background and have that jiu-jitsu background. I think it looks better, too, in fights when you're on top because in, in any judge's eyes, the person on bottom is losing the fight. Whether they're going for submission after submission, if you're on bottom, you're getting punched, you're getting hit, that's a less dominant position. It looks bad in the judge's eyes. So I think it's better to have that wrestling style of jiu-jitsu of being a force on top rather than, than trying to fight off your back. I know they're in two different parts of their careers. You just saw Chemaev have a decent performance against Usman, even though it was on short notice and there was a little bit of controversy with his hand and all the rest, right? And we're seeing Bo Nickel. He's an up-and-comer. He's finished basically everybody. Well, he actually has a 100% finish rate in amateur and professional. What do you think between the two? Who do you think is going to find the success at uh, middleweight in the next, like, three years? I mean, I think they're both going to be successful at middleweight. Um, as far as them, like, fighting each other, I think I think that the UFC is kind of purposely doing that because they have two stars on their hand at the same weight class, right? So they want to build both of these guys up. And then eventually down the road, once they're both built up, once they're both superstars, then they can have a mega fight. So I think it's just kind of smart business practice on the UFC's end not to kind of match them up too early because, what you know, obviously someone's going to come out a loser and then their stock is going to go down in viewers' eyes. So keeping them separate, building them up separately, and then having a big mega fight at the end for a title, I think is, is a much better way to do it for UFC as a business and for fans also. You're more invested, right, when they're both built up, when they're both superstars. So I think uh, it works out better that way. Who would you pick in that fight as an early prediction in three, four years' time? I think Bo's going to grow a lot, and I would consider Bo Nickel probably a better fighter, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, I think in three or four years' time, I, uh, 
you know, obviously depends on, on, on how well Bo improves, but I don't see him not improving a lot, right? He's one of these guys who's a workhorse. He's proved it in the sport of wrestling. He was one of the best ever to come out of Penn State. Um, and he just has that mindset. You know, he's a winner. Hamzad is, is the same thing. It, I, it was a fight that I would hate to bet on, but, uh, you know, being an American, I guess I would lean towards uh, Bo Nickel in that one. <laughs> When I saw the fight with Usman, I was I was pleasantly surprised that Usman was so um, you know his fight IQ was such a, at, at a high quality. At the same time, his skills were so well rounded, and I just thought during the fight, I went, "This is why this dude was a world champion and got six titles in the UFC." I go, "This guy's striking is so good for being a wrestler," and uh, Chamayev striking, which people thought he would have being able to push uh, Usman off his feet and l- literally just KO and flatline him with punches. Um, Usman showed that when it came to the striking department, he had the advantage. So in my opinion, I don't think Usman's done at all. And I think that his home should be at middleweight. I think he should. He looks way more healthy at middleweight. He looks um, stronger, more dominant. And to be honest, I think he's a bad matchup for the top, top four at middleweight. So... Do you think that he should stay there? And do you think if he does, he'll get the belt? You know, that's, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of people were saying, I actually missed the fight. I was at my kid's uh, baseball game. When, and because of the time in Abu Dhabi, the, you know, the main card started at like 1 p.m. Um, but I mean, yeah, I heard, I heard that if it had maybe been like a five-round fight or if Usman had a full camp, right, that he, he probably would have had a better shot at beating Chamayev. Um, and I could definitely see that, you know, Usman was a world champ. We can't forget that. Uh, he was one of the best welterweights to ever do it. Um, and, you know, coming off the couch and giving a performance like that against a monster like Hamza Chemaev is, uh, you know, that's no small feat. So, um, I definitely think that if he felt that, you know, it's definitely, it's up to Usman. I don't know how great he felt at middleweight. I don't know how he feels at welterweight. Um, Obviously, you know, we were talking about the weight cutting earlier, and if we eliminate that, guys are going to be fresher going into the fight. Uh, you know, it, it, it kind of depends on, on how you weigh the advantages and disadvantages of weight cutting. You might be bigger than the guy going into the fight, but if you suck down a lot of weight, you know, if it goes into the later rounds, you're, you're going to be weathered. So, um, But I think that, that Usman would be successful whether he's at welterweight or middleweight. I think he could be a champ in both divisions. Ricardo, you said that you saw the fights at 1 p.m. Dude, I'm in Australia. The fights were on at 4 a.m., man. Like, wow. really? Yeah. So I, I, to, I, to, I had to wake up for that. I had to wake up for that, which was which was terrible. Have you had to Have you had to ever fight in a country where it was, like, at midnight or something? Have you ever done that? Yes. Um, so when I fought Darren Elkins, it was in Argentina. And because of the, uh, the time change, they were, they were setting the fight so that it would, it would play prime time in the U.S. So I was literally fighting at like 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, Argentina time. So uh, by the time we got back to the hotel after the event, the sun was literally coming up. It was like 5 a.m. I remember like going to put my stuff in my room, hanging out in the lobby uh, a little bit with some of the fighters and then going to eat breakfast. So it was, it was very strange when, when you fight kind of around the world at those, at those weird times, because you don't realize like in Abu Dhabi, they did it prime time Abu Dhabi. So that's why it was earlier here in the U S and the main card started at one when it usually starts at 9 PM um, fighting in Argentina. They made it for prime time U S 
so we fought we started really late on uh you know the main card Dude, what do you do if you're in that situation? Personally, I would, like, wake up late, drink, like, two, three coffees, have some electrolytes, uh, go crazy on the vitamin C, and then jump yeah. in the cage. Do you do anything like that, or are you just an animal? You don't need anything. You know, when uh, when you're in that position, the adrenaline's going through you, I think you're ready to fight no matter what time of the day <laughs> it is. But uh, I definitely took some naps, and, and during that day, because we didn't have to show up till kind of, you know, pretty late in the evening, and I definitely had some some coffee to wake me up for that one. <laughs> when you were talking about the Dagestanis and the Chechnyans on their back, you don't really see it happen too often. I was re-watching the Tiago Moises Islam Makachev fight, which was actually a fairly close match. And Tiago, when he took Islam down, which is a really rare sight, but he did it, when he took him down, Islam went straight on his back and he uh, pulled a guillotine that was so tight that Tiago had to like blast out of it, either get to side control or, or just completely flip over to get out of it. So the second that these Dagestanis get on their back, just like Khabib's triangle on Gaethje or Islam's guillotine over Moises, these guys have a guard game and also have a game on their back. They just refuse to do it because of what you just said. They refuse to do it because it looks like a, a like a less dominant position and they don't want to lose. So what do you see from, from those two when it comes to that position? You know, the, the other thing why they like top position so much is because I don't know if you've ever like trained or, or sparred or anything, but when you're on bottom and you have someone on top of you that's pounding the piss out of you and you're like trying to get back to your feet for dear life, it drains you. So it's, it's, it's also very like high flight IQ to stay on top and drain your opponent that way. And we've seen... Um, we've seen Habib do it in his fights. We've seen Islam do it in his fights. They get on top of someone, they're pinning them down with all their weight and, and you know, punching them in the face at the same time. These guys just literally get broken mentally and physically. So I think it's just that Dagestani style of go in there and, and mentally and physically break your opponent to get the win. One fighter that I see on that top position striking then get the submission off it is Demetrius Johnson. The case study I always say is when he fought Wilson Hayes, if you remember, he dropped like a million elbows, dropped the ground and pound, and then the second Wilson put his arm to either defend an elbow, that's when the arm bar came in, right? He didn't, he didn't really sub a, a ADCC, you know, gold medalist. It was more the fact that the striking led to the led to the submission. So that's what I think you're saying. Would I be right there? Yeah, of course. You know, it, when it comes to like straight up jujitsu or jujitsu with strikes, it's two different worlds, right? When we're going straight up jujitsu, I don't have to worry about you hammer fisting me in the face. If I'm fishing for a leg or fishing for your arm in MMA, you have to keep all that in mind because you know, one slip up and, and the guy can knock you out from the top position. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely two different worlds when you add strikes in to, to the submission game. Should there be standardized belt ratings for no-gi grappling? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it shows improvement, right? If, if people are improving in no-gi grappling, you know, I, I belt my no-gi guys here. You know, my, uh, my main program here is, is no-gi because that's what I concentrated on when I was fighting. I trained jiu-jitsu specifically for MMA, so, I mean, I've done gi, I have trained in gi, um, but my my main passion is, is for no gi uh, jiu-jitsu. 
So, I mean, I'll, I'll belt my guys here. And it's, it's nothing more of, of a symbol to show them that, hey, you're on the right path, you're improving, and, you know, you're moving on to the next level now. What was the fight in the WEC? I saw it on your Instagram. I can't remember the opponent. He put you in a rear naked choke. You escaped, and it was all about not giving up in the fight. Which fight was that? That was against uh, Dave Jansen. So that would have been my first, second, third, fourth fight in, in the WEC. Um, Dave Jansen was uh, a great wrestler out of Oregon. Um, I think he he went on to win the Bellator Lightweight Grand Prix or something like that, after, like uh, maybe a year or so after that fight. But yeah, that was that was a, a back and forth fight. You know, he had me in some bad positions, and um, yeah, I kind of used that as one of my Motivation Monday posts to, to never give up because you know you never know what's around the corner, right? You always, you always got to fight for your life and sooner or later you're going to catch that break. So um, it was, uh, that was actually probably one of my favorite fights in the WC that I had. Would you say that's your favorite fight or a different fight um, more so your favorite? My favorite all time, you know, it, it switches around and there's different, I would like refer to different ones as my favorite for different reasons. Um, my fight against Eric Koch was uh, for kind of the number one contender spot and it was in my hometown it was the first time I got to fight in front of my family and friends in the, in the UFC. So that's one that, that stood out to me a lot. My fight against Dennis Bermudez was on the very first event in Latin America. I'm half Mexican, half Cuban. So the fight was in Mexico City. So that was a huge one for me also. Um, just kind of little things like that. You know, each fight is, is, is special and uh, holds a place in my heart. You know, it's like having kids almost. <laughs> You beat me to it. I wrote it down because I always do my research on the fighters. I was going to ask you, but you keep bringing it up, so I'm going to ask you now. You're Mexican, Cuban, and you live in America. So if you had to, if you had to say what your nationality was, what would you say you're you're more involved with? Which culture are you more involved with? Um, I mean, I was born in America, so I'd say I'm American first more than anything, you know, and. Uh... Uh, culturally, you know, um, my, my father was born in Cuba. My mother was born in Mexico. My mother came here when she was very young. So she grew up most of her life here in the U S my father came as uh, a political exile from Cuba. Um, after Fidel Castro, uh, assumed power in, uh, so Fidel Castro came into power in 1959. My father was involved in an underground movement against him where, uh, you know, they would speak out a lot against the government. They would try to rally the people together because they knew what was on the horizon, you know. Um, and in 1963, my father decided to leave the movement and barely escaped with his life, uh, which, you know, one of his friends in his same movement um, didn't have that luck. And he was sent to the firing squads after being arrested by, by the Cuban police. Um, growing up with a father like that, he... he he taught us a lot about our Cuban history because he was so involved in, in the Cuban political scene. Um, but I wouldn't choose one ethnicity over the other. You know, I wouldn't choose Cuba over Mexico or vice versa. Uh, if I had to choose one over anything, it, it would be my, it would be America because this is where I lived. Um, this is the country that my parents fought for to raise their kids in. You know, my, my father had to leave Cuba because he knew there was no future there for him. There's no future for his family there. 
and uh, he, he decided to come here with literally nothing and built himself up to a very successful person, which could not happen in the country that he was living in. So I'm very proud of that, and I'm very proud to be an American. What's uh, something that your father spoke about in uh, just the Cuban history? What's something, because I just heard what you said before, and that's just out of control, but what's something else that he told you about that people would be, you know, like astonished by? Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot. Um, I think more, more, more of what he told us about was kind of stuff that he was involved in. Um, he was the president of the uh, national student sector of this organization. It was called the 30th of the Frank Pais 30th of November movement. Um, my father was the president of, of, this, of the student sector, like I said. So he was involved in propaganda. They would uh, kind of print out newspapers, handing them out to the people, kind of speaking out against the government. You can't even do that there, right? You can't go out into the streets and, and condemn the government because they'll haul you off right then and there. For doing stuff like that, obviously this was all building up to some sort of counter-revolution. You can't overthrow a dictator without violence. Right. They're not just going to relinquish their power because they say, oh, you don't like what I'm doing. OK, here, come take over. You have to take it through force. There were a bunch of different movements going on in Cuba. And I think the, the main goal was to get all together and then overthrow Castro. Right. So th this was all building up to that. But the, the, the hard thing there is you didn't know who to trust because Castro and the regime had kind of plants everywhere. Right. So the way my father's group went down was um, he decided to leave. He was the president, right? He met with his second in command, this guy, uh, his friend Luis. And he gave him all the papers that he had that involved their movement, whatever. He explained to him that he's leaving. He went and uh, sought refuge in the Brazilian embassy in Cuba. He had to stay there for six months before he was allowed to leave the country. Um, in that time, while he was, I, I believe it was when he, he was still in the Brazilian embassy, uh, his group was infiltrated by, by the government. So they were building up for this, this big counter-revolution. They had a day planned for it, right? Supposedly they had weapons, they had tanks that some other guy said that he can get a hold of, whatever. But that, uh, the night before all that was supposed to go down, everybody in the group was arrested. My father's second in command was arrested. He was arrested. He was charged. He was tried and he was executed in 21 days. That's the type of, of political justice system that Cuba has 21 days. And this is a guy, this is a college age student, right? They're in their early twenties. So, um, what about your father? In, he, he was in the embassy at this point. So what happened right, after so that? He was, I mean, he, he, was tight. he was safe in the embassy, and then from the embassy, he uh, went to Puerto Rico, and then from Puerto Rico, he came to the U.S. I'm not sure about the dates. I don't know if the infiltration happened while he was at the embassy or when he had got to the U.S., but I know that it wasn't very long after he had left um, and, and sought refuge in the embassy. Um, so, you know, my father was one of the lucky ones to, to make it out, but there were, there were thousands of others who were captured and sent to the firing squads, you know, from then on out. Um, and still to this day, the, the Cuban people are being oppressed and, and uh, 
you know, it's been, uh, you know, Fidel Castro, when he assumed power, he said he was going to hold free elections 18 months afterwards and give power back to the people. It's been over 60 years and not one free election has taken place in Cuba. Would you consider him an inspiration? My father? Yes, of course. A hundred percent. An inspiration, a role model. He's somebody that I've aspired to be like my entire life. Um, and even as a father now, you know, I'm trying to, to live up to, to what he did for me and, and my brothers. What's that like for you now that uh, you've got that role model and now you have your own children? What's uh, what's that like building your family? Um, you know, I use him as an example of, of what a father should be and, you know, always being there for your children, um, always teaching them between right and wrong, um, always showing them the proper path to go on in life. So, you know, he did that for us and, and, and I try and do that for my kids now. Of course, moving on to a really, really big win of your career, which was the guillotine choke over Charles Oliveira. After you beat him, did you see his career trajectory just going to the fucking moon and getting like an 11-fight win streak, getting the belt and getting the most success in the sport? You know, I knew even before I fought Charles Oliveira, he's been in the UFC, he was in the UFC, I think just as long as I was, maybe even longer. He might've entered like while I was still in the WEC. I can't really remember the dates, but he was, um, he was, he was 20 when he entered. And I think right. he was 12 and zero. I think his debut was actually Darren Elkins, which uh, did you, you said that you fought him in Argentina, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, there he you submitted yeah. Darren Elkins, I believe in the guillotine. Triangle. 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 Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was a submission. So, yeah, I mean, I knew he was good. Um, I knew he would move on to do great things. Um, but, yeah, it was just, you know, some of these guys, you, you just never know when they're going to have their turning point in their career and just fire off on, on a ratchet of wins and, you know, and become a world champ. It, it definitely it didn't surprise me because I knew how good he was. Um, it's just, you know, it goes to show you that's why so many people love the sport. You never know what's going to happen. You never know who's going to be the next star. You never know who's going to be the next world champ. It makes it very exciting. Dude, after watching that Makachev fight, I'm a little bit upset because I know that it's going to be much more hard, more difficult matchup for Oliveira. And to be honest, I think that what we're seeing now is we're seeing kind of more of a Robert Whitaker Adesanya position where Adesanya held the belt and Whitaker kind of beat all the contenders. And I think that that's exactly what's going to happen with Charles Oliveira, with all these up-and-comers. I don't think there's a single other person that can really beat him up until it's, you know, until he's in that fight with Makachev. So do you think that he's kind of in an awkward position right now, or do you think he can beat Islam? I think anybody can beat anybody. You know, that's, again, that's why we love this sport. You never know what's going to happen. It takes one... It takes one good punch. It takes one slip up. Um, and, you know, a guy like Charles Oliveira is very dangerous. It's not going to be an easy feat because to beat someone like Islam Makachev, that's a huge feather in your hat. You know, he that guy very rarely does things wrong, you know, uh, and he's very dominant. So is it going to be a hard fight? A hundred percent. But but can Oliveira win? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think he can. Um, it's, it's going to come down to who wants it more and who's going to perform better on that night. How good are your barbecue back ribs? <laughs> oh, you did do some research, huh? It's, uh, it's something I've been experimenting with for years. So I love, uh, 
you know, like I said, I've been involved in cutting weight since I was 14. So I've also been involved in loving food since I was 14, since I've had to like take it out of my, you know, all the good stuff out of my diet. But I always make like lists that uh, of restaurants or whatever that I'm going to go to after my fights. And I always make lists of like different things that I want to try cooking and experimenting with. And uh, barbecue is one of them. So I've been, uh, I've been kind of playing with, with my recipe on, on those barbecue back ribs for, for a long time now. And uh, I like the way I make them. So much that every time I go to a place to eat ribs, I get disappointed because they're not mine. <laughs> You're joking. You go somewhere, you get some good ribs, and you go, these are inferior to my ones. Are you serious? Yeah. Yeah, a lot of places. It's hard to find a real good barbecue spot that I really like because I'm, I'm kind of used to cooking the barbecue on my own. And I think it's always – I think it probably always tastes better to you when you cook it yourself. You know, it's kind of like putting in that work and getting the reward afterwards, so – Bro, in Australia, we don't really have barbecue stores like like right. America. We've only got like Korean barbecue. So what am I missing out on? Um, Korean barbecue is real good too, man. But uh, it's just um, American barbecue. It's that it's the low and slow. It makes the meat very tender, like fall off the bone. So it's very uh, savory. And you got it. You got it. You know, if you're ever in the States, I'll give you my number. You hit me up. I'll take you to a good barbecue spot. <laughs> Most definitely. What's uh, your recipe? You can't tell it here. I know, but like, what can you allude to? How do you cook your uh, ribs? So I do, um, you know, when you think of barbecue, you think of like wet sauces, like barbecue sauces. I don't do barbecue sauces. I do a dry rub on the rib. So I'll say it's, I mean, the, the main part of the dry rub is brown sugar. So along with a lot of other spices, you rub it on the ribs, you let it sit so that those spices kind of infuse in the meat. And then you throw it on the smoker and I'll smoke mine for anywhere between, uh, like usually about five hours is what I'll, I'll smoke it low, you know, very low temperature. And then it just comes out super tender and juicy. And, uh, I'm getting hungry right now. I'm gonna have to go eat something after this interview. <laughs> for, let's say let's say hypothetically speaking your family the Lamas family exists for forever right in 200 years time right they look back and they go one of our one of our lineage uh you know one of the people in our family lineage was ricardo right and there's only one clip they see of you and it's the max holloway it's the ending of the max holloway fight and that's the only clip they have would you say would you say well done would you say that's a career like well spent yeah i think um i think that's a good clip to be remembered by like just you know i've, I've always said i want to be remembered as like a dog in a dog fight you know someone that never backs down that's always there in your face so i think that would be a good clip that kind of embodies that that fighting spirit that I've had, you know, someone points to the ground, I would say, yeah, let's go. And then we just start throwing at each other. So, um, I think that would be a good one to, to leave behind. Who was the best fighter that you fought? Jose, uh, Charles Oliveira or Max Holloway? Um, I would, I would say Jose was, I mean, that was at the time where he was really at the, the height of his game. He was, uh, one of the pound for pound best ones in the sport. Um, and I just remember like anything I kept trying to put together just wasn't panning out. He was really good at, uh, at staying calm and, and staying, you know, defensive, but offensive at the same time. So Ricardo, you met Kane Velasquez, uh, what an absolute beast legend of the sport. What did you guys discuss? And, uh, what did, what was he like as a person? Um, 
<clears throat> so I didn't really get to like talk to him for, for a whole lot of time, but I did get to meet him and I told him how big of a fan I was. Um, you know, he was one of the guys that, that I looked up to a lot when I was just, even like before I started training, I think he was already on the scene when I had started training on MMA. Um, and me being half Mexican, of course, you know, I had to, uh, I had to root for him in all of his fights. And I just remember probably, uh, the best memory I have of him is when he fought Brock Lesnar for the title. And I was just, uh, I was at one of my cousin's houses. We were watching the fights and just, we were all going nuts. Like just seeing him, like compared to Brock Lesnar, he looks like a little guy. But I remember at one point he's like in on a high crotch and like lifts Brock up in the air and, and, you know, dumps him for that takedown. And like everybody, the whole stadium went nuts. We were all going nuts watching the fight. So just, uh, you know, stuff like that. I just told him that I was a huge fan of his. He was thanking me. He was very humble and, um, he was definitely a, a good guy from what I could tell. So you had a white bull terrier, um, and he was a funny looking dog. When did you get this dog? And, uh, why'd you post 50 different posts about him on your Instagram? Um, because he was like my mascot, you know, uh, my, my fight nickname was the bully. And it wasn't because I was like some asshole who'd come take your lunch money. Uh, bully is in bull terrier, right? Bull, the bulldog breeds, the bully breeds. Um, so that dog right there, they're, they are very strange looking. And I remember the first time, the first time I saw one was, uh, I think it was in the movie next Friday. Um, you know, the movies with Ice Cube and Chris Tucker and all those guys. So there was one of those dogs in there. I was probably like a junior or senior in high school when I saw that. And just the look of the dog really caught my eye. And I was like, man, that's such an awesome looking dog. So I like always wanted one since then. And then when I graduated from college, um, I kind of gifted it to myself of, of buying myself one. So he was like the first dog that I bought on my own for me that I took care of. And, um, I had just started like, uh, you know, it was right after I graduated. So I started training MMA. He was with me for like every training camp and training camps are pretty lonely, especially when I go out to Miami because I'd go out by myself and, uh, I, I, uh, I take him with me. So like he'd keep me company. He'd be there every time I got home from practice, whenever I was having a bad day, you know, he'd always cheer me up because those dogs, uh, they call them like two year olds in dog suits because they're really silly and, and, you know, he just make me laugh all the time randomly. So, um, he was like my mascot. I'd wear, I got literally like, Oh, you do too. Clothes, right. Yeah. So, you know, on, on all my stuff, I, I put him on there. And, uh, so that's why he, he just, you know, held a very special place in my heart. Final question. You went to Buffalo Wild Wings with Demetrius Johnson. What's the story behind this? Um, it was just one of those events where UFC would, would kind of send fighters out to watch pay-per-view events at, at certain restaurants. And me and, and Demetrius Johnson just kind of ended up at the same one one time. Um, he was a cool guy, you know, funny guy to talk to. Um, I don't have any really, like, crazy stuff. You know, he's down to earth. He's not, like, one of these crazy dudes. Um you know, there are definitely other fighters that I've hung out with who are much crazier than Demetrius Johnson, but he was just, you know, a nice, nice guy and fun to sit and watch the fights with and talk to. That's all we have time for, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Ricardo, for coming on and giving me your time for today. Is there any final remarks you want to say to the fans at home um, as we wrap up the podcast? 
No, just thank you for all your support all over the, uh, over all these years. I uh, really appreciate it. You know, without you guys, we wouldn't be able to do what we love. So uh, thank you for always tuning in and watching our fights. Follow Ricardo on Instagram, link in the description, and follow Anything Combat on Spotify. See you guys next time. Bye-bye. See you later.